I don't even know where to start. Uh, Craig, we've known each other for 15 years. Is that about right? Um, pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. I think we first met when you were at SSH Communications. Absolutely. Um, yep. And I've watched you. So the way I would describe it is uh, I've seen you do everything from field interaction to development uh, with a passion and a rigor that has always impressed me. Um, you always want to be the best at what you do. Uh, I suspect it's buried in somewhere in your psyche and a combination of your military training and background and you're just being a genuine human being, but maybe we'll find out a bit about that today. Uh, what is your current title and, and, and where are you at the moment, just to put it in perspective? I'm the field CISO at Netrics. Good to have you here. Thanks, Sam. So, I have. I've, I've uh, worn a few hats, I guess, since since we've uh, started talking. Yeah, I, uh, you were a CTO recently, I think. Right, I, I was. Yeah, yeah. I was the director of identity and access management at HP. Did a little bit as a CTO, um, field CISO. Maybe changing that soon, so we'll see. <laughs> Ooh, oh, is this is this is this an announcement or are, is this a no? No, just take it's a warning. No, no, no. <laughs> Maybe just take a little bit of a bigger role um, in a in a growing nice. company. So yeah, kind of one of the that, like you said. Like I'm I'm too uh, I'm too impatient to sit back and wait for things to happen. I'm just like, oh, that needs to be done. I'll go do it. <laughs> just do it. Yeah. And and um, the other thing is, you're very direct with um, when you see value, when you don't see value, when you see substance or not and that has always uh been something that i value hugely so uh yeah it's good to have you on man thanks i appreciate it this is great i thought and, we uh, might, go we ahead, might start off sam um talking a little bit about the field CISO title because i got uh because you're also a, field CISO. yeah i am yeah. also a field CISO. but i got into a conversation on linkedin this morning and craig and i were talking about it just before you're able to jump on um, where someone had posted and said, what does a field CISO even do? Was the oh, that's in, in summary. That's harsh. Um, it, no, I, I don't think that it was meant to be harsh. I think they genuinely were like, why is there people with field in front of CISO? Like, why is that a combination? I, I, I can give you my take on it. Um, and then, so, so let, let's be clear. First of all, that the biggest problem in security, I think, is the gap between security and the business. Um, most of us, as we got to be CISOs, we we had to be the smartest cyber people in the room, like period. And so you, you go up, 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 and then you hit the CISO rank. And guess what? That's not what the job's about, right? The, the real CISO job is in fact about lateral relationships and it's about speaking to the business and you turn up and you go, hi, I'm Mr. or Mrs. Risk. And it turns out that's actually, there are other people that do that too. There's legal, there's operations, there's finance, and they speak a completely different risk language. And so while we train everyone, hey, you're the voice of risk, it's actually not entirely right. We're supposed to actually be business people first when you get there, and we haven't had any training in it. And so the reason I mention all that is because, and I, don't, I promise I won't pontificate for long, but, but what happens is we all have a fantasy of resignation and we have huge substance abuse problems. 
And what I mean is, right, there's a high, high incidence of drugs and alcoholism and obesity and people not taking care of themselves because they can't communicate the risk that we really do have to the business. And they're seen as hobbyists or they're locked out of meetings they need to be in. So what happens? Well, those who do it really well, um, eventually they change companies and they don't do really well in the next place, right? And and, and it's, it's difficult to really sum that up, bring it across so a community is needed. And so for a little while, many of us spend time in the field, sharing the tips and tricks we've learned, helping companies understand how to talk to the business, help their customers succeed. So unlike, say, a CTO role or like a head of R&D, a field CISO is a different creature. In fact, there, I, I was telling you, Jacob, earlier, and I mentioned it to Craig, it's almost a CISO in residence at a certain point. And yes, there's a higher percentage of them, I think, than in other functions. But like a CTO, mm-hmm. a field CTO doesn't sit there and tell CTOs how to be CTOs. But a field CISO becomes a best friend to the CISO. And by the way, they go in and out of the CISO role all the time. Uh, Everybody who's in the CISO role has to spend some time for their company talking to customers. The question is, do you do it 30% of the time or do you do it 80% of the time? That's my take. And I will now shut up and hear what you think. Yeah, let's uh, go Craig next on his take. And and actually just maybe just talking about what your role is and how it touches on so many things. And I'll go go last and I'll share a little bit about that. I I really like that, Sam. And... I, I view it much in the same way. You know, I think a big part of my job, whether I was on the practitioner side of the table or on, on this side of the table as a consultant is going to the business. You know, I had the I don't know, blessing or misfortune, depending on how you look at it, it, of joining cybersecurity from a non-traditional role. I came at it from a military perspective. And the military perspective what, is what really year was like that when you made the, the transition? Two, 2007. Can I ask so a sidebar on, on sure. how did you get into the military? Did you go from high school and you went to the recruitment office and you're like, I want to be a badass or what, how was the... My grandfather was an army ranger and I was mm-hmm. kind of messing up in, in high school. And I remember him knocking on my door, punching me in the face and <laughs> opening a beer and being like, we're going to figure this out. You need to go put on some boots and get your shit together. <laughs> I was like, like now that's oh, a grandfather. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. So did you go so I did. to the military then? Yeah, I, I joined. I went through infantry school and airborne and did all the th- all the stuff and jumped out of planes and had a great time. I loved my my time in the military. But then when it was time for me to get out, it's kind of in a world where I was like, I don't know what to do. I have a high school diploma and I'm trained at something that doesn't translate to the civilian community at all. Um, I fell backwards into my first job was actually at HP. I went to my cousin's going away party. Um, she was going to Afghanistan in the National Guard. And, uh, met a guy named Phil Parker who gave me a, a shot that I shouldn't have had, right? I was supposed to be an unarmed security guard at a Tyson chicken plant making seven twenty five an hour. And, uh, he was you like, gave that up. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. For right? this? <laughs> he, yeah. He was, he was like, uh, Hey, I'm going to teach you Unix. And I was like, what's Unix, you know? <laughs> and he, he was like, it's fine. I'm going to pay you, pay you $10 an hour while we train you on, on Unix. You do like level one health desk. We'll give you a script. And then once you know it, we'll, we'll talk about giving you some more money. And, and then you're uh, like, you had me at $10 an hour. Yeah. yeah. Right. Immediately. And kind of that, that military training in me kept me relevant. I was just, number one, I was working with all these people who had high school or had college degrees and certifications and they knew how all this stuff worked. And I was just quite frankly, scared of being the dumb guy in the room who got found out and lost his, lost this new way of making all this wealth. Right. So I was like $10 an hour. I can't lose that. 
Like, so I better, I better figure out what the heck HPUX is and, and then go from there. And that, that was in 2007 that kind of launched my career. Um, and that same thought process I've kind of kept with me, right? So I go to the business and I try to figure out like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it that way? And it's made me a really good kind of, it positioned me very well for the, the modern CISO role, right? Like, I know how to go out and talk to them and figure out how to partner with them. You know, provisioning processes are completely broken now with cloud adoption. The business doesn't have to go stop by cybersecurity and say, hey, can I do this? They're just going to do it and expect you to catch up if you don't want to partner with them. So I've built my career around partners providing security at, the, at, at their speed and kind of with their expectation. Um, so it's been really good. And... To, to go all the way back to the original question, Jacob and I were kind of laughing about this earlier. Uh, the field CISO role is fantastic in a small company, right? I get mm. to do so much stuff. I'm never bored. I'm, it's not monotonous from day to day. But if I was in a big company and it was very prescriptive, like you're going to do this one thing day in and day out, I don't know that I would enjoy my role as much. But I get to do everything from field, you know, taking feedback from the field creating a go-to-market strategy. I have influence over product. I get to interface with our customers in a non-salesy way to speak and do thought leadership at conferences, do podcasts with guys like you. So I wear so many hats on a day-to-day basis that it's it's great for a person like me who wants to be involved in, in everything. I think that's... A- that's a fantastic way to think about the field CISO role, at least the way I think about it too. At the end of the day, my job is to make the business go. And that means helping ensure customers are comfortable with our internal security at hell. It means help get revenue. It means help build products. It means make sure we are the most secure company because when customers come to us, they expect their vendors to be the most secure. And typically for me, we're the one of three vendors that might have access to a few critical bits of data. So um, yeah, Craig, that's a really good summary. Like it's, yeah, it's uh, you become the security whisperer in your organization. And the cool thing about being in a small company in general, and, and I had this at Cyber Reason, was you don't wear one hat, right? Like, like you get you get to try different things, and wherever you're needed, you can step in and just you can carry a project or you can make someone successful, and that's huge. I think I think most of us in cyber, I know a few people that are not like this, but most of us are. We want other people to be their best selves, right? We we sort of. Certainly for me, I'm like, I feel like cyber is a life skill in the corporate world and not enough people have it. Um, Can and, you elaborate and, on that? Like yeah. You know, like, is the life skill. You, you know, when, uh, so I, I have children. I'm wondering what life skills they need when they go out and which ones, which ones hamstring them and which ones enable them. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Greg over at Watco, who's a CISO there, and he's doing a community education thing in the next few days. And we were talking about, so in an age of AI, you know, what, what do you advise people in terms of like being aware of, of value manipulation and ads and everything, including things like pornography, like some of that stuff is targeted right to the lizard brain, right? So there's, how do you enable children to survive? But then most companies, cyber is not part of the DNA, even in cyber companies, right? So I, that's so weird, right? <clears throat> yeah, I, there's a startup that I, I'm not going to name who they are because they're wonderful and they've got four developers and their very first customer said, would you please fill out this security survey? It was a hundred tough questions and they panicked. 
And so I said to them, hey, hey, whoa, you, you don't have to have answers for all of this. You've only existed for eight months, right? What matters is your attitude going in that you're clear and transparent and you give the opportunity for the customer to tell you what to work on. They're like, yeah, but our answers are so bad. I said, mm -hmm. if they're really a good first customer, right? And they're going to work with you. They're going to understand the spirit in which you do this. Now, I they filled it out. It was great. The customer got on and said, hey, can you put these two or three things out of the hundred on your next roadmap in the next 18 months? It's not even a got to do it. So could you just work on those? And, 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 and we forget, especially when dealing with big companies, we forget that it's about risk management and how you approach security as opposed to what the bar you hit is. Right. And I just felt so bad because even this small security company had such a high hurdle to hit. And, and I'm mentioning all this because really it's about you. And, and you're both actually the security whispers within your companies. And I think that the, the quote field CISO name doesn't do enough to justify that. I, I really try to change the, the mindset here um, at Netrix to be less, let's stop talking about product. Let's start talking about the business problem that we're, we're t attempting to address. And then product will fill in those gaps naturally. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, you know, going in and it, it has to be much more than just, you have this problem, so let me sell you this product. It needs to be way more strategic. And that's where I kind of view my role is like, I understand the surrounding technologies around our portfolio, the mm -hmm. upstream and downstream integrations where you're gonna see better value add, better telemetry data, all of these types of things. And then explaining that across multiple levels from the technical level all the way through the SOC and then up to the CISO level and being able to speak in those different things. I think that that's a very rare skill set. I mean, the three of us have already had an amazing conversation, but be honest, like this is kind of rare behind, unless it's yeah. behind closed doors and then people can like open up, but getting somebody who is uh, a seasoned cybersecurity professional who also has the ability to speak to people across business languages and wants to do it pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Um, anyone who gets on the phone with you, regardless of what the title is, is rapidly going to realize that who you are and they're going to value that conversation. Uh, they just are. Yeah. I had a, uh, yeah, go ahead, Jacob. Yeah. I, I think that to Craig's point to a story that I think illustrates that skill set. Um, I had a customer that came to us the other day and they said, this doesn't meet any of the privacy requirements that we need. And it wasn't a conversation of like, hey, you guys suck. It just was like the very, you don't meet this. And I said, what What does it take to meet it? Can you talk to me about why that's the case? And here's the business problem we're trying to solve and why we think it's important. And they said, we do think that's important. We agree that's important. But what about these privacy things? And we sat down, we went through all their requirements and how we could meet them and said, give us a few days. We'll come back to you and see what we can do. See if it's reasonable for us to build that even. And I think that's the difference between um, a lot of people like it illustrates what that skill set is, Craig, that you just elaborated. It's ability to have the conversation instead of people just butting heads and saying, no, let's not do business. Let's walk away from the table. Yeah. I have, I have this very similar example. I mean, we're working with a, a company right now that we filled out an RFP, which I kind of have my own opinions on RFP processes, but I mean, essentially what the company said is we're coming to you because we want to modernize our identity and access management, how we do this from start to finish for contractors, employees, third party, the whole thing. But then they sent us an RFP that was based off of the last time they did it. 
so we we failed the RFP. We didn't even get past the RFP phase. So we went back and we were doing a postmortem. We're like, hey, you know, you came to us and you said you had all these aspirations for user self-service and automation and all these other things. We filled out the RFP in relation to that and we didn't make it past your scoring. They let us back in. We went into the technical evaluation. Same thing. Use cases were based off of their previous architecture, their previous use cases. So they're measuring us against the benchmarks for their environment as it exists today, not where they wanted it to be. Failed the POC. Went back in, did another evaluation. Okay, now we're going to, we're going to be a part of the bake off. Went back to the bake off. No new use cases for the third time. The only difference was this time was I pointed out, hey, we're testing all of these old access methodologies. We're not we're not testing against the environment that you want and uh, ended up getting the sale. But it was one of those things where it was, you know, constantly going back and saying, like, part of our job is also educational. You know, Um, you want to get here. How do you get there? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not always the easiest bridge to, to travel, especially when you've got, you know, influencers and, you know, the, the Gartner magic quadrant and like all that type of stuff that says like, I want to do all this cool modern stuff, but the only companies that I can work with are up here and they're not doing anything really revolutionary. Right. So it's just a lot of that. I'm sure you run into that on a day-to-day basis too, Jacob. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's no magic quadrant for, what we do, we're the only company that does cloud native would, would cloud native backup. Um, everyone else came from the on-prem world. There is no, we're the only vendor that built totally cloud native from the get go. Uh, so we don't show up on any magic quadrant. There is nothing for us. It doesn't exist. And then people say, Who are you? Can you, yeah. Can you send me your magic quadrant? Like, and then I, I used to run with cyber insurance all the time, right? People would be like, so, so. What do you do for this? And I'd be like, well, we don't have that legacy network component, so nothing. And then, and then, <laughs> Fail. so you, so it's like, yes, no, <laughs> NA. Fail. So you, you don't want to put no, you put NA, and then you have to put an explanation and you put the same one. We're a cloud native company. We haven't existed long enough to have a traditional network with these components. Therefore, we don't have it. They're like, what do you do to protect your data center? And I was like, we don't have data centers, you know? Yeah. It, Amazon protects my data center. Call them. Right. But you don't want to put that either. Right. Yeah. Um, just the other day, a, a large engineering firm, uh, I was talking to, to the CISO and it had nothing to do with us. With us, He's like, man, I, I don't know how to do this RFP process without it just falling to the same ruts as before. I said, well, first of all, you, you, you need to just change the structure of the RFP because otherwise people are going to cut and paste. They're going to do it anyway. But start with an RFC and go out to the vendors and ask them, what should we care about? As opposed to just cut and paste 80% of the last RFP and pull it forward. Cause you know what? 80% of that came from before and you've got something that persists from 2004 and you're entering 2024. Nobody cares about that stuff, right? So the pace of change is such that you've really got to start over and, and you've got to ask a request for comments period. What sorts of things matter? And, and he said, well, can you give me an example? I said, yeah, sure. Uh, your company has an ESG. Right. It has to do with like, you know, um, um, basically environmentalism and social values and those sorts of things. You have this as a mandate at the top level. Are you serious about it or are you not? Is that just like words? And he's like, no, no, the, the CEO is really serious about it. I go, okay. So can you in the architecture reflect how, for instance, consumption of electricity and the generation of that electricity is going to affect your carbon footprint and therefore it matters in your RFP? Like, can you do that? I don't know. Like, 
And will any vendors bother to even tell you that? So he's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I said, go through and you make it yours. Don't like your job's not to get the homework done and, and sufficiently thick that you, you had people working through a weekend. Your job is to go through and find the product that's going to meet the needs you want. And if you don't know your needs, then why are you doing an RFP? I wish there were more RFCs. I can't tell you. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I literally couldn't tell you the last time I filled one out. A lot of, lot of RFPs, a lot of, um, a lot of value prop type stuff where it's basically like, you know, come in and show us that there's an issue, but not a lot of RFPs. And I agree with you too. I don't think company culture and all that stuff takes a lot of, uh, takes a lot of precedent as much precedent as it should in, in the buying process. It's a lot of things that end up shelfware just don't get deployed at all because you're like, didn't think about where the company was trying to go and you bought something that just doesn't fit. Right. Yeah. I mean, heck, if you just did posters and you just did a few t-shirts, fine. But like, if you're serious <laughs> about this, you know, and the funny thing is yeah. like literally a week later, I got a call from uh, some field folks and they said, um, we've got an RFC and we're not entirely sure what we should do with it. Uh, cause <laughs> that. And I was like, all right. So I actually overlabored it. I wrote, I wrote an RFC response just cause you know, I'm sitting around with the kids. Cause it's Labor Day weekend. That's what it's everyone Labor does Day for weekend. fun. Labor Day weekend. Yeah. I have no life. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if part of it's driven from, I think a lot of security people won't admit this or, and it might not be conscious either for a lot of security leaders that the fear of getting fired or not doing your job well is so strong that you're mm. like, I have to have the, the Gartner magic quadrant checkbox of acronyms. And so you just issue RFPs trying to get the best list of acronyms put in your business because you genuinely think you're doing the right thing. And I, again, I'm not trying to criticize people unjustly because I, I don't think it's always a conscious choice when people do these things. They're following what the market's doing or they're following what they see other peers doing or they think it's right. But do you guys disagree, agree with that statement? No, I, th I think the other maybe untold truth in that whole thing is how many companies actually write their own RFPs versus going to a third party and say, hey, you're going to roll this out for us anyway. So you write the RFP which is almost always heavily influenced consciously or subconsciously about how they're getting spiffed, what products they're getting told to push <laughs> right. that month, you know, all of that type of stuff. Um, there's, there's certainly a lot of bias in that. And that's why I say like, I have my own issues with the RFP process because everything is weighted, but it's yeah. weighted in a way that you want it to go. Right. So you're like, I think the marble's probably going to roll to the right. So I'm just going to lean the table just a little to the right. <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's definitely some, there's almost some cultural grooming that happens. And I am, I hate that word, but um, we sort of, we train people through, I don't know how many layers. And by the time they get to be to the upper layers where they're making decisions about this stuff, it's very much an artificial jargon that's being thrown around and used. And it's very industry specific. And you notice it when you finally get to another company and you're like, whoa, different industry, different vertical. What is this language? It takes a while just to adapt to that. And then you realize most of it's not direct. Most of it doesn't matter. But it's very hard to both survive in an environment, learn the language, and then still be direct and to the point and do what matters. Hmm. Yeah. All that matters is outcome. But you had to deal with this in the military, Greg. I mean, uh, isn't that oh, isn't that the yeah. ultimate home of acronyms? Isn't that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, we we joked about this. I joked about this at HP when I started there because I was like, the only place where I've heard more acronyms was the military. But we we literally <laughs> one of the first things that I did at HP was make they we created a cyber dictionary because we had so many acronyms that it was like 
we hire somebody to be like, Hey, six months from now, you'll understand what we're talking about. But <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. so I, I, I literally made people stop and like, t- I was like, Hey, can you tell me what that means? And it was kind of funny because they could tell me what function it served, but they couldn't tell me what the acronym actually meant. That's right. So I was like, awesome. you can't use that. And until you can tell me what it means. And if you can tell me what it means, then you can use the acronym. I used to use it early on in my technology career, did the same thing around scripting. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Feel free to write scripts, use the scripts that are out there. As long as you can tell me what they do. But if you can't (laughs) tell me what that script does, you're not allowed to use it. Because I just, too many times, you know, Unix is worse. It's going to get worse. I know. I I see the AI thoughts in in Ah, Sam's eyes. There it is. Ah, (laughs) Leaky abstraction. What? No, no, it's uh, yeah, that's happening. Um, these, these become functional blocks in our thinking and then we toss them around and get lazy. Yeah. It's terrible. Craig, what in the, in the military, what other, I would say lessons did you take from a more physical warfare to the, to the, um, non-traditional warfare? Yeah, how do you beat up the CIO is where you're going, right? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) How how do you kidnap the CIO? No, uh, the man, I'll tell you what, one of the things that I I tell people, I talk about this a lot. We, we have this really great career field that we're a part of. And if you go to college, that's amazing. If you don't go to college, but you know what the hell you're talking about, that's also just as amazing. Like I've worked with people who have doctorates who are incredible. And I've worked with people who didn't graduate high school who are just as incredible. Right. Um, I say <clears throat> at a certain point, we all base level understanding of what we're doing. And the only difference is the amount of lenses that we can, that we've collected through our lifetime to look at a problem through. Mm. I have, I just happen to have a set of very unique lenses. Like I know one of the things a lot of people talk about in cybersecurity is like stress management. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's not a thing for me. I mean, not to say that I never get stressed out, but like, oh, you've been in some tough situations. I, I know. My, my worst day as a cybersecurity professional is it, it's going to be fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I think it's really learning how to talk to people and weaponize the, the skills that they probably already have as an individual and teach them that just because it's not necessarily a cybersecurity skill doesn't mean that it's not relevant in, in this uh, career field. Right, right. But I also, if anybody, I know Sam, I've run some documentation back a- across you in, in the earlier days of my career. Um, I come from the military, right? We write things down to the most basic level. Like if you read my documentation, it's not because I'm condescending. It's not because it's literally just spelled out for you. <laughs> you will do this, then this, then this. And I, I keep that kind mm-hmm. of as I mentor people and stuff too. It's like, learn something, do it, then teach it to somebody else. That's kind of my, my philosophy through, through life, through whatever. And I mean, I kind of stole some stuff from you, Sam, as, and as I got more into reading in the civilian world and stuff too, is I give books away all the time. And the only oh, yeah. rule is if I give you a book, you're just not allowed to keep it. Yeah. Just like, pass it on. Just keep it going. Yeah. Yeah, don't give it back to me, but give it to somebody else. So I, I kind of keep that same thought process as I help people in their careers, whether it's, you know, me technically mentoring somebody or, you know, talking about speaking in public or whatever that happens to be is, hey, yeah, I'm happy to teach you anything that I know. Open book. The only the only qualification for, for this training is that you also have to do the same thing. You're not allowed to hoard this knowledge. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and there's something to be said, by the way, I remember in... Uh, Engineering, we used to say you got to break it down into digestible track, into digestible chunks, and keep making them smaller. 
you said something very similar there when you write <clears throat> documentation. Um, and I've always felt like there's almost something Socratic. What do I know? How do I know that? How do I know that? How do I know that? But it's not a formalized thing. I'm describing it after the fact. What we do is we break it down into very small, knowable chunks as much as possible without getting into the you know, etymology of it. But like, really, what do I know and how can I lay them out in sequence? And, and, and I've seen you do this, by the way, when it comes to, excuse me, but the BS claims from various vendors, you're like, okay, so you say you do this and you say you do this, and you say you do this now, now show me these pieces. And if they can't, you know that they're full of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's a certain, I guess it's, it's a, re a reduction to basic building blocks. And that itself is a methodology. And, and do you think you got that from the military? Was it something inherent? Do you, maybe from your grandfather who punched you in the face? Or, uh... <laughs> it was, you know, I think the military kind of perfected it because they, there's this, um, like your, your assumptions. Hmm. What I know about something after being in this role for X amount of time versus somebody who just got into it. And can I still distill this information down to that level? Or have I lost that? Because I think at some point there is a natural disconnect and you can only speak down to a certain layer effectively, but teaching somebody something is the fastest way to find out whether you know what the hell you're talking mm. about or not. And, and quite and honestly, Sam is one of the things that you told me probably during oh one God, of our, what did I say? Oh no. <laughs> Dunning-Kruger has it oh, stuck yeah, with yeah. me. It stuck with me. Literally. I remember you sitting me down like a super early in my career at SSH and you being like, Hey, yeah, you, you kind of know what you're talking about, but be careful. You might be on Mount Stupid. And I was like, oh my God. So, so I'm like, I'm constantly looking in the mirror like, do you really know or are you full of it? And Sam, you broke Craig. <laughs> well, this, this, is, this is like, we all have a certain degree of imposter syndrome. Now the question is what you do with it. Yeah, like if, if right. you hoard and you're afraid and you sort of, you gatekeep and you say, this is mine, I don't want anyone to know, that is in my mind evil and if instead you're in the open and transparent and, I go, and, and you're like not many people have the courage in a new job to say hey i don't know what that means right and and to ask for help but what you're doing is you're building trust and you it's not a confidence in the subject matter which you don't necessarily have when you first started a company but it's a confidence in yourself and your ability to be in a position to work with others that makes you great Right. So there's like these two responses to that fear. One is, one is I'm, I'm going to hoard it and keep everyone away. And the other one is, um, I'm going to be open and transparent and genuinely try to find the truth here and pay it forward. And I think those are the, I don't want to call them, I'm going to evil and good approaches. And we know when we find the evil ones. Right. And, and I, and, and the, the trick here is to keep creating more of the good. Um, if that's too simplistic, I apologize, but that, that's how I, I love that. And it goes all the way back to what Jacob was saying earlier. You know, there's a, I think there's a massive fear around people losing their jobs, but the, the other side of that, that whole coin is, man, we work in a career field with a negative unemployment rate. Like there's more jobs than there are qualified people. So if you're scared to ask questions, what are we doing? What, and quite frankly, what does that say about your leadership? Because yeah. me in a leadership role, I want everybody to ask if I'm in a room with 30 engineers and nobody has any questions, y'all either don't care about what we're talking about or you're not paying attention. Like we should not have everybody who's in this lockstep. Like somebody has got to raise their hand and be like, I don't understand that. Or can you explain that to me? I don't, I don't know what we're doing here. 
Um, what's the goal? Whatever. But yeah, empowering people to ask questions, the only way that we get better, but we kind of, it's kind of also, I think it maybe is a, a character flaw or character trait of the people that are attracted to organization is like, we're, we're all kind of not all of us, but the vast majority of us are kind of loners who are totally comfortable kind of working in a room by ourselves. Yeah. A little damaged, but, uh, but then, you know, we also, then all of a sudden somebody comes and they're like, collaborate. And you're like, why? Mm. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> So yeah. it's, it is a change. It's a change in across the board, but <clears throat> man, I've seen that work though. When you get a group of people who are not scared of losing their job, who are comfortable asking questions, the amount of change that you can create in that environment is just insane. Yeah, it's so true. That's so true. Um, <clears throat> so we have to, we have to switch gears a little bit. Uh, We've talked about work context, uh, and I know you're wearing a rugby shirt right there. So yeah. uh, Rugby World Cup's coming up, and um, I know we talked a teensy bit about it, but are you, are you excited about that? And uh, Oh, man, yeah. Saturday, right? Got the first first match, All Blacks in France. Yep. Rugby Rugby is also one of those things. It's kind of... We could make so many cybersecurity analogies. I know you were a rugby player. I was huge. Just- I was. It was big for me in the early nineties. I, I, I a lot of folks don't know that about me, but I used to play uh, semi pro and competitively. But yeah, I, I loved. I loved rugby. It was a big thing for me. It's and it's kind of the same thing, right? It's a lot of strategy. Sometimes it can just seem like you're kind of beating your head against the wall, and then all of a sudden, boom! And you're like, I didn't even see that coming. But it's cybersecurity is the same way. And, and that's kind of get, talking about our roles as field CISOs and stuff like that. It's the same thing, you know, look, taking a step back, looking at what a company is doing, finding a strategy kind of in that chaos and then starting to execute it. And a lot of people won't really even see it. It just looks like we're still pounding the ball down the pitch. And then all of a sudden it's out the back and it's try time. Right. So, but yeah, that's uh rugby is, that beautiful game of chaos that, uh, that my, has- my dad, my dad used to call it a thug sport for gentlemen. And he used to call yeah. it soccer, <laughs> a gentleman sport for thugs. And, uh, uh <clears throat> no offense to any football. That is the most players. accurate analogy that I may have ever heard about both it's, sports. I've never it's heard true. That. That's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. I have to say, so, so I played soccer as a kid and loved the game and I played hockey and I played a uh, bunch of other sports and, there seems there's like this bubble around you when you play most sports, right? There's like, I'm here and I got my personal space and mm-hmm. there's occasionally somebody comes into it, especially in like, uh, like American football where, where, where there's a lot of sprint and sudden impact. But I was a forward in rugby, right? So I played, uh, I used to play loose head prop and I played eight men. And so for those of you who don't know, that's that pack of people running around chasing the ball uh, very, very closely and getting in the scrum. That's the thugs. The, yeah. yeah, but but the thing is, you're so close. You're in each other's personal space, holding on to each other, pushing. Um, you feel closer to those people after about five minutes of play than I felt in some season, and than I ever felt in some cases. But in a certain whole season of other sports, there's a uh, everybody pushes and struggles in the same direction inside each other's personal space. Craig, I don't know if, if that resonates with you, but oh, yeah, it's like nothing I- else. I played in the pack too. I played in the backs a couple of games, but the pack. They're, little, they're a little loosey goosey and, and artsy yeah. fartsy, but that's okay. <laughs> that's you know. They hey, that's that sounds like fast, where they put me know. then. <laughs> Absolutely, my my favorite, right? Exactly like in football, I played on defense. So if I got the ball, something went wrong, you know. Yeah. And then they were like rugby. 
you're on the pitch all the time. Are you Everybody's on the pitch. Everyone's playing. Or? Yeah, American football. Yeah, American okay, football. Yeah. But yeah, rugby is just and it's it's also weird the amount of like highly educated or like doctors, lawyers, cybersecurity professionals, like all the way down to like blue collar like you you're gonna meet people from all walks of life playing rugby and they all have the exact same respect, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. the same. There's one there's one referee on the pitch at a time. And they're controlling thirty large individuals who, <laughs> and all of them respect the, the the ref with complete authority. Right? There's no arguing. Oh yeah. No, Look how uh, few substitutions there are. Oh Look yeah. At, there's no none of this like take a dive, roll around moaning on the ground. That doesn't happen, right? Because you get it. Like honestly, you only you only go off if if you if you have to be dragged off, right? This is so. It's it's amazing. Yeah, go ahead. You're, you're do you that. know about do you know about this? So in in fifteens rugby, you can only dress twenty three people. Is that yeah. right? Twenty three mm-hmm. people. So if you're if you're on the pitch and you go off, you're done. That's it for the day. You can't That's it. go back. Come back. Right. So you only have eight substitutions. So it's <clears throat> that's where I kind of and get it, this camaraderie. When, played, when I first played, it was two. Oh, it was right. two. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was because I played the old rugby union versus rugby league and you couldn't oh. make money playing in those days. Like it, that's why it was semi-pro. There was no pro back then. Well, that's different now. And um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, so I, I said it was a thug sport for gentlemen and that's unfair to the women out there because uh, we used to say, by the way, there's a position for every body type in rugby and there really truly is. But uh, some of the most violent rugby I've ever seen is by two groups. One is pros. They just a whole different game, right? And the other is women. When I watch women play, it's it is, they it it is just a different game. It's it, it is, they're amazing to watch, and it is an amazing uh, sport. But it's a different game from when the men play for some reason. And I don't mean that in a sexist way. It's just a different game. Like oh, it's uh, in in my opinion, it's a it's a more beautiful game. It's oh, it is. The, yeah, you, you can see the strategy unfold. There's a lot of times in in men's rugby where the game kind of goes. They just have one super freak athlete on their team, and oh yeah, there's always that guy who can raise his knees to his like shoulders height. He's like playing all the way back (laughs) and just run, and you're like, I can't wrap that guy up. Like, yeah, we're going into the the World Cup, and I was I was talking to a few people actually about where to watch it in Houston and stuff like that. But um, I ended up getting in this conversation. Was talking about women's rugby. To your point, Sam is. It's it's a great sport it's a by itself. Different, oh, it's amazing! I love it. My daughter's six, by the way. She's going. The, we have a professional rugby team here, the SaberCats. They're posting. They're doing a young kids uh, flag rugby skills mm-hmm. clinic, and she's like, "Dad, I want to go." I'm like, "Oh, yeah, go we can it. sign you up for that immediately." Yeah, <laughs> yeah and uh, and the other one that's oh, there's another game that is just an amazing example of athleticism is rugby sevens. Oh, sevens so is it, it? You know. Most of the time, what you'll find is like in, in American football, and I'm distinguishing that because, of course, we have a global audience. Um, but in American football, it's very often sprints and hard hits and then a little walk. I won't say walk, but then you sort of reset and sprint. Uh, rugby, for the most part, is like a marathon by comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yep. you're, you're running hard, but you're not sprinting all the time. Like there's times when it happens, but the play doesn't stop as much. And it's always moving and rolling, right? Generally speaking, sevens is a sprint for the, the entire duration. It, you've never seen athletes like this. They are physically strong, they are flexible, and they move like 
They move like spit. Got just bigger bam. lungs than everyone else. For anybody who has not watched Rugby Sevens, <clears throat> first of all, it's in the Olympics, so you definitely should go check it out. And it's seven Second on the side on a full yep, field. It's <sighs> super, super fast. Go watch Fiji. Go the men's oh, or women's team. Go watch any Fijian Sevens game, and you're going to instantly be hooked. It's so they're yeah. they're amazing. About three minutes into a Rugby Sevens match, I'm dying. Like I can't. Oh. No, and, and for now, forget it. But even when I was in, when I was fit, I mean, like, no, no. Just, I did but that. It's great I, to watch. Me and my old rugby team flew up to Alaska, um, and there's they call it the Pitch of Dreams up there. This guy has this massive house. You can it has its own website, um, oh. but he invites teams from all over the world. He, and it's during the summer, so kickoff. It's midnight sevens, right? Oh wow. Um, <clears throat> It's beautiful, first of all, playing and then playing rugby up in Alaska. But yeah, to your point, um, exhausting. Like <laughs> the amount of pickle juice that I drank in one summer playing <laughs> sevens and blueberries and Cheez Its that were consumed was just probably unheard of. But yeah. So when, it's, when I used it's to play, by the way, a, a competition, now this is not, this was just a, a, when we used to do club and, and, and city. But a competition was three things, right? The game. And you could lose the game and you could win the day. And so the second was drinking. So you'd all go out Social. there. And the third was singing. Because there was always a team so. bard in those days who knew mm-hmm. all these dirty songs and whatnot. And you'd all have to sing along together. And, and by the end, you could win two out of three and, and you could still win but what the, about, the game. But what about shooting the boot, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to explain that one. So... So actually, in, in rugby culture, it's like uh, the home team has to take the away team out for dinner and mm-hmm. drinks. It's the teams it's are almost thing. always sponsored by a pub. Look, you don't. Want we, were, to be, we were sponsored by a, by a, by a, by, a, by a bar. Uh, when I was yeah, say, right. So it's like you don't want to be dirty hitting somebody with no pads and then have to go drink a beer with them, right? Like right. that's that's kind of keeps the game civil. Well. The, the other side of that is there's some rules around rugby culture, but specifically singing. If you mess up a song, you have to, sh- you have to do what they call shooting the boot, which means somebody's cleat that was yep. worn during that game is going to get a bunch Nasty. of various liquids put in it. You're going to have to chug it. And then you have to redeem yourself by starting right. the song over and not messing <laughs> up the lyric. So being a, we being should a do that in on a rugby team. We should do that in hey, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> How, what's the rules on that, Sam? Describe I think, I think, no, I think, I think we should have that. songs in, in the cyber for dealing with risk. And uh, I did a haiku once. I did a, I did a, uh, I did a requirements because somebody challenged me to do this. So it'd be easy with ChatGPT. So there's no real fun in that. But I did, I did a haiku. I did requirements as haiku, all the 14 syllables and everything. So, yeah, <laughs> that's but, amazing. Uh, yeah, uh, it was Sam always taking ass. it back to bards. You, yeah, you know, you just want be. bards in real life. I want bards in real life. It's not fair. Yeah, but you notice like any place where there's like a really tight camaraderie though that that exists. Mm. The military, think about that. We we run to cadence. We sing mm, and right. at almost everything that we do. Rugby is the same way. Football, sporting events always have like some sort of projected music upon them. But oh, where those games are, Wales. F- have you ever been to Game in <clears throat> Wales? The whole stadium I, sings. It's crazy. No. Oh, well, so we were talking about this before the podcast too. I had this uh, immense opportunity. I was down in Australia for work and I got to go over to, to New Zealand and I, I watched the all blacks. So the New Zealand mm, rugby team that they, they do a haka, this tribal war dance. And there's a few different versions of it against Australia, which is, you know, obviously their rival. 
Um, and it was, I, I literally got goosebumps, but I mean, yeah. the team, the team is doing it on the pitch and then you've got all the natives around you who are, who are doing it too, the locals and stuff. And it, it's like, that's whoa, really cool. It, it's hard to not be like transported back in time and be imagining like looking in the into the tree line and hearing these people <laughs> screaming and this and you're like oh oh dang all right like <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're it's like about I'm to not playing down. rugby here is what they would have said yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> we'll just go we'll just go have the world the world cup in Australia I think is what we'll do yeah <laughs> I think I'm gonna leave this island we'll yeah. go to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's such an amazing sport, and yeah, bar it's underrated, right? I mean, gotta have them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's always fun. Yeah, the um, yeah. So um, so Matt, we've talked about, we talked about a lot of things. We went we went from field CISOs, who I guess are are the team bards, maybe uh, to um, <laughs> to the right philosophy when approaching some of this stuff, and and the personal dimension here. Um, we also. Um, I think I think we could also maybe maybe talk a little bit about uh, what do, what do you think is is most important at the moment value wise. So you've been doing the CISO gig for a little. Oh. Bit. Do you have any advice for any other field CISOs or for people? Or, or forget that for a minute. Anybody who's a security whisperer or champion in their company and they're like, you know what, I'm not getting people to listen to me or people are struggling. Want to become a security any whisperer, thoughts from say, either like, of you? Actually, you? yeah. I mean, so my two cents on that is, <clears throat> like I said, at some point given enough time and and hopefully you're driven enough to to master whatever subject has piqued your interest in cybersecurity you're going to have the fundamentals down um at some point the inhibitor isn't the the technical knowledge it's the ability to go interface with your human counterpart in the business who mm. you don't necessarily understand why what they're doing is important and they don't understand why what you're trying to get them to do is important one of the biggest things that has helped me in my career and, and that I recommend to literally everybody, I don't care what level you're at, you're going to have to influence somebody at some point in your career. Go take a Toastmasters class. Oh yeah. Go That's read a good one. Go read yeah. a couple of books. Go to go to Toastmasters and then go to your local cybersecurity meetups and and interface with people who don't have an agenda. They just want to figure out, you know, hey, we have this problem. Can I get some advice from somebody who's not trying to sell me something? Um, that would be those. That'd be my my advice. That's solid. Um, the only thing I, I would I, add to it is, uh, you know, in the end, have the same. If if you are in this position, genuinely be interested in people um, rather than commercial things first. Um, the other one is try to get involved beyond and the meetups is a great suggestion, but also in the community, I, you know, I teach, but I also try to mentor some of the most interesting people I've had to deal with or work with have been not because I had to, um, but because I, I wound up um, working with them and in, encountering them in ways I never expected. So like, you know, mentoring a student at the local university, for instance, or um, helping out somebody in a small business, uh, mm-hmm. I've just been asked to speak at a local chamber of commerce and I'm like, what do they want to hear about even? And cause I have, I have no idea. Right. I, I know that they're suffering from ransomware, but do they even know that, you know, like, do they know what that means? Like, <clears throat> like right. Other, other than, you know, the, the news headline, do you understand what ransomware is and how this happened? Yeah. I mean, do they expect <clears throat> me to come in and talk about that? So just, just getting ready for one of those and, and is really hard uh, in some well, cases. Well, they're on a different, 
you know, most of the people I imagine that are going to be there on a different plane when it comes to business, right? Like their yeah. frame of reference is probably they do business with the community or maybe the community plus the surrounding towns. Typically, the people that are part of Chamber of Commerce um, are regional businesses versus you are in a global business and you see global problems. So I, I think that that's a major difference um, between mm, what, what they sure. expect. They don't like the problems that Zscaler has and deals with. These people would never even think about would be my guess, like because they're operating a small business. Typically, there might be folks that are not, but it's a it's a total different world. Like they want point of technologies for them is. How do I get the technology that I need in one package and one solution as cheap as possible? Right. How do I get my and that's, I think that's, customer management? How do I secure it? Yeah. And that's the other thing is like a lot of, a lot of these uh, customers and like that in those segments, the smaller side of things, you know, they're, they have cybersecurity insurance regulations now and they're like wow. put in a PAM solution and they're like, what the hell is PAM? Why do I need and who this? is she and why do um, I need to talk to her? Yeah. 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 And it's, <clears throat> I mean, I, I've, I've done some just friendly consulting stuff with like construction companies that have been hit with ransomware and, you know, going in and talking to the owner of the company and they're like, dude, I, my guys don't even like the fact that they have to have a laptop. Mm. Talking to them about cybersecurity is not like... You don't be the, the 9 millionth person who comes in there and tells them, don't click on suspicious email links. They're, they're already not listening. At some You're point, lucky we have if you don't to, get a beer uh, domed off your head. Right. I mean, at some point, we have to put um, controls around there because the human element's always going to be there, right? But it's today's world is it's kind of crazy because you have these industries that historically haven't been super cybersecurity forward, but are being kind of forced to be now. Yeah, yeah. and and it's it's about to get much harder. Um, I know we we jokingly referred to ChatGPT earlier and, and generative language models and, and LLMs, but honestly, all the advice we've given people so far is m not all. M the vast majority of it is useless. Hey, look for the typo. Hey, look for the bad logo. Hey, look for the bad URL. That stuff is not going. I have to be... a, such a, a counter opinion to most of the industry. Go for on, it. Yeah, on ChatGPT, I. <laughs> Yes, it will create some more adversarial capabilities, mm. but I think it's we're missing the point totally, most people, that it changes the fundamental model on how we do things. So people think about, yeah. this is how I do things today. This will change maybe a micro or disrupt how I do things. And it's such an eye-focused thing versus I look at this next wave of technology of changing how you interact with technology in general. Like, I think I might have said on one of our podcasts. I don't know if I said on one of our podcasts, okay. but the keyboard and the mouse are such an antiquated way to, as an input and management system, really think about it's that. Terrible. Like, you sit there and you press all these little buttons and you move this thing around in a configuration that you've had to learn to interact with this. And what these technologies do is start opening up the ability to fundamentally change the model and the way we do technology. And yes, that will come with some negative things, but the benefits are going to be so much further than what we can imagine or even do right now. And we're in the first wave of this. So the first wave, for instance, um, that I think is really interesting is ChatGPT is really good at content generation. So what you can do with that intelligently right now is game SEO. You can actually make your website work better. So um, my friend who's starting a small business, we've sat down and we use ChatGPT to generate content, write articles. So their website's going to rank above everyone else's 
in the local You need area. to do that for this podcast, Jacob. Get on and, man. It's- <laughs> I only have so many hours in the day. Um, and so you can <clears throat> essentially use that to generate all this content. And so businesses that don't understand any of this or any of that, their websites now are going to rank so much lower. But what's end up going to happen is Google's going to change what they do. And this is going to break Google altogether. Google might even go away. Like Google searching might be a thing of the past. Like the way we interact, I use Bing's chat GPT all the time, just yell at it. And then it gives me an answer. I'm like, <laughs> hey, Bing, can my dog eat this? As it's licking something off the floor and it summarizes all the stuff on it and gives me references. But it's a, you have to step away from the way we do things today and think about total futurism. You have to have a futurist mindset when looking at this stuff and not be thinking about how it just impacts little tactical, but my job's going to be harder or attackers can do things like, who cares? That's not what this is about. Yeah. I I imagine a world where, uh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Craig. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I was like, I I really like that. Um, Me too. And that's something that I, I, I try to instill in like the CISOs and stuff that I'm talking, especially like very, there's certain organizations that are more resistant or certain verticals that are more resistant to change. And that seems to be the traffic comp. You have to get my stamp of approval before you put anything in production, right? Instead of being more of that business enablement. I think, I think you're right, Jacob. I think it's, uh, you're going to evolve or kind of go away. Right. Precisely. As a thought experiment here, years ago, the university of Chicago did this, uh, encephalogram stuff, right? Where they were, they were, literally looking at the visual cortex in the brain and parts of the brain. And they were, they were correlating it with machine learning to images so they could effectively do mind reading. And that's actually got more advanced. So imagine you do away with the keyboard and the mouse, as you called it, Jacob, right? And you start to have a direct machine to brain interface. Neuromancer, William Gibson thought it would take a plug, but I don't think it will. Right. And I know that Elon Musk is working on a direct one, but Neuralink, I think it's called, but let's put that in Imagine you in a world where it can be directly interfaced with. So think of high bandwidth, direct-to-brain, multi-channel connection, and you're now interacting. So now it's difficult enough to tell when intellectual contamination happens when you work on something with someone. So what if two brains are working on something and interacting with all this technology? First of all, whose idea is whose? That's tough. And we have to get the privacy right and the security right with your whole brain potentially open. Now imagine what it's like if you disconnect someone. So... Is it a human, fundamental human right to be connected to something that throughout no point in our species history we've been connected to? Because your whole way of operating is going to change when you start to interface that way. And then someone's going to work that way and live that way and love that way. And they're going to, what's me versus someone else? And then, hey, you're going to prison and you don't have the right to do that anymore. Well, what about crime? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, and that's there we go. very <laughs> interesting. That's very, very interesting. I, uh, it reminds me of, um, have you ever, I know you have Sam, have you ever read like the ready player one, ready player two? I books? love, I, I haven't read the second mm-hmm. one. I have I read the first one. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I boycotted the second one forever. Cause I was like, this is obviously just a, a, a scheme to get more money. Right. But the second book was actually pretty good. So I, oh, I highly I'll recommend read- it. I just huh. finished the book I was reading yesterday. I'll add that to my queue. So I love Ready Player One. My wife read it too. Loved it. I read the same year in the Martian. They were both player two. I mean, read it. One read it. Read it. I didn't too. Read read Ready Player Two. It's a very it's a a very interesting way that they continue the story, and it kind of touches on this what you were talking about. I won't spoil it too much, but essentially the thing is like you're in their metaverse, right? And um, 
all of a sudden there's a piece of malware or something happens to comp- it, it it fries your neural the wetware and it uh. won't let you out of the game but your body is fatiguing and your body is going to break down your brain can only handle a certain Oh this mode. is like um Sword Art Online style. Yeah. If, if so ch- check it out. It's really yeah. good. Uh um, Neuromancer did this, did did that as well years ago. We're talking the 80s. It was talking about when you interface with the computer, there's programs that you in, that you fight with. Essentially, they're called intrusion countermeasure enhancements. Ice. Some of it could fry your brain back and could kill you. But in this case, it's that notion of not being able to disconnect. Because uh, I imagine I, know, I for one look forward to that. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the the concept is what about like rogue AIs that can process faster than your brain can, that are inherently stronger than you, faster, smarter, whatever. So yeah, read it and let me know what you think. But yeah. in that in that same or take thing, over your body. Yeah, essentially that's what's happening. Right? Don't spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Not, for, yeah, not read, not. You're good. Read. You it, put a spoiler read alert it. up when people. Are <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that that much of a spoiler alert. But I think but, this is the um, we I, should. The other side of it is my daughter. I mean, my daughter started kindergarten this year, right? So I'm oh, I'm right. taking her into a classroom, and it was amazing. And it was amazing until it wasn't right. Like her teachers, oh. like been a teacher for 34 years or something like that. And she's like telling me like, I've been teaching and I love kids and I've been doing it this way for 34 years. And I kind of sat back and like, there was that part of me that felt comforted as a parent that I was like, Oh man, my kids in safe hands, right? This person clearly knows what they're doing. And then there was the and other part like, of me that was like, yeah. I was like, damn 34 years and you haven't changed anything. I don't know if that's the best. Like, shouldn't we be refining our educational procedures like year over year? I mean, there's iPads and technology now. Are you, are you still teaching like cursive and abacus? Like what's going on? <laughs> like I've got a speaking spell in the back of the room. <laughs> <It's great. laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a TI-99 back there. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean though? It's kind of, it's kind of a crazy thing. Cause <clears throat> even now, like Isabella, one of the electives that I got to sign her up for was kids in coding. And I'm like, she's six years old and learning how to code Minecraft and Roblox that. games. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's the future, right? That's where yeah, my going. son, my son's been begging me to do that. He's seven. Yeah. He wants to do the exact same thing. It's, I recommend it, man. I mean, she's only been doing it for a week, but I mean, so far it's pretty cool. They grow up so fast, don't they? Oh man. Nuts. Yeah. All right. Anything else, Jacob, you think we should be bringing up? Because we're right at the hour mark. This is it. That's the. Craig, was there anything that we didn't talk about you thought we should have uh, dived into? I mean, I was kind of following you. I love the conversation. So I was just kind of following. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could talk to you forever here. I think we could talk about AI. I'd love to hear more about your military experience. There's so much we could do. But yeah. Yeah. the, The AI stuff is kind of. I guess we're the only thing that scares me about chat GPT really isn't the adversarial stuff. It's really, it's really just the inherent flaws in, in machine learning and stuff like that. These things are being programmed. So they have implicit bias, right? Where's the bias come from? Who's programming these robots to make sure that we don't have, we don't carry on these like cultural stereotypes and everything else, you know? Um, so yeah. that's that's the stuff that worries me. And then we saw over COVID, regardless of which side of that fence you fall on, how easy it was through media to manipulate. And you kind of fell in one of two camps. You weren't allowed to be in the middle anymore. It was like, you're either with us or you're against us. So oh, if you have something yeah. like chat, that's throwing everybody into 
you know, if I say, Hey, write me a, a paper on the color orange. And then all of a sudden I have a difference of opinion on what the real shade of orange is. Am I now the outlier? Right. So, I mean, obviously you can extend that to a million different scenarios, but that that's the, where my mind goes with that stuff. Isn't really like our adversary, our adversaries are already going to be probably more well-equipped. They share information better than we do, like all of that type of stuff. So yeah, there's a million different things we probably could talk about. No, there's a, there's a ton there to unpack um, just by well, itself. I, the, the, the whole, yeah, I'm just trying to think about what to pick on first when you, with your I shade of orange. I think we should save thing. it for. Yeah, for because you want me to save it for another one. I, the I whole do. shade of orange thing. I was going to talk about how Italian people already are say totally if an hour is a large commitment. Yeah. Uh, right. Go further. We'll talk about right. in, implicit bias in AI. And get, so, like, eight so, people on here. <laughs> so the so the bias thing. I do want to say one thing, which is after after <laughs> one of our not. recent podcasts, I have to just say this because I have yeah. to do justice here. Someone said, I don't know if I agree with you on something because. Um, I good, think, thankfully. Yeah, no, 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 this is good. But I said, like, go write it in the comments so other people can, can like, chime in too. Um, I think when, when, when we get bias, it tells us one of two things. Either we're doing it wrong um, <clears throat> or it's holding a mirror up to ourselves so that we become aware of something, right? Either either we know we, we don't want the bias and we go and we root it out or we're not aware the bias exists and, and the mirror is helping keep us honest to some degree. And I think that's a really important thing because sometimes you're like, wait, wait, we do this thing. I wasn't even aware we had this discrimination in our society or this injustice, right? So to some degree, the AI is going to help us find the, the unfairness, find the, the thing that's wrong. And, and I think we're always on a quest to try to do better. Or, we should. or does it hide it more efficiently to where or does it's it not as uncovered? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I was actually petitioning at the time, and I'm and, I, and I'm writing a petitioning. Petitioning is wrong. It implies I'm going to someone. I'm I'm advocating for having review boards and ethical review boards around the use of um, of uh, the AI toolkit in general. Not because I want to slow research down, but because I want us to be stopping and thinking about should we do things, and once we do, what are we learning from it, uh, and that those dialogues should be there. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that because somebody had said, "Hey, I don't know if I agree with you on the whole point about uh, about uh, a bias uh, in general." When we were talking a little while ago, but yeah, I hope. People yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. Time. I I think that's a thing too. I mean, you, you can see that time and time again, even with the AI ML stuff that we have now, right? Go at, yeah. go ask a go ask a, uh, a something that does facial recognition to draw a picture of what a criminal looks like. I bet you it's oh, pretty biased. Oh. Oh, I bet it looks a lot like Jacob, by the way. That. <laughs> on that, on that <laughs> note, we're all I'm up on Mount Stupid right now. On yeah, that note, I'm yeah. gonna now hit stop. Yeah, well, I had to do that. I, no, except it'd be Jacob with a ponytail. That was what it would be. That was so, the. Those <laughs> who don't know, Jacob used to have a ponytail. I ago. did, and that's how you get a uh, a non a non job, right? That's uh, that's is yeah. Always trust Craig, the thank you. In, in tech. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, thank you, Craig. It's great seeing you.